Broadcasting from the James Baldwin Seminar Room on the campus of Bowling Green State University, this is Real CRT. I'm here, Tim Messer-Cruz. I'm joined by my colleagues Jason, Alex, Cheris, and John Jama. Um, so, I think I have some good news to report this week. Uh, I, I don't want to speak too soon, but um, we are now to the end of March, and the Ohio legislature was originally planning on holding a hearing and possibly voting on HB 327, Ohio's anti-critical race theory bill, on March 4th. And that date has been pushed back and pushed back. And I was very pleased uh, last week, Friday, when the schedule came out for this week's hearings and HB 327 did not appear on the list. And uh, if that wasn't uh, evidence that there's some disarray in the GOP, in the Ohio GOP, over this issue, I think another event that happened this week might be the coffin nail to this whole thing. Um, the, one of the sponsors of the bill, uh, Sarah Arthur Fowler, from a district just east of Cleveland, gave an interview to uh, Channel 5 Cleveland uh, in which she was asked about why it was important to legislate legislate against uh, the ideas that her bill would legislate against. And this was her response. Let me just play it here and uh, I'll see what you think. Okay. Here is some of what Fowler Arthur said. What we do not want is for someone to um, come in and say, well, obviously um, the the... German government was right in saying that a Aryan race is superior to all other races and therefore that they were acting rightly when they um, murdered hundreds of thousands of people for having a different color of skin. James Pash with the Anti-Defamation League is concerned that Fowler Arthur is unaware of how many people were murdered and why. And Dahlia Fisher with the Maltz Museum is worried that the representative believes Judaism is a race. And the significance of this is that Hitler and the Nazis were the ones who categorized the Jews into a race. I would say that if someone was to use that language today, it would be an act of anti-Semitism. There's no baseline of even education there that six million Jews were systematically murdered, and millions of others. I can't think of a, a more important need uh, or call out for the need 
of increased education. Then, Fowler Arthur made statements about hearing multiple points of view on the Holocaust. Or maybe you're listening to it from the perspective of a Jewish person that has gone through um, the tragedies that took place. And maybe you listen to it from the perspective of a German soldier. The German soldiers or the Nazis, would she feel the same way about like 9-11? Does she want the perspective of the hijackers? Okay, so uh, the sponsor of the bill uh, wants to be sure that our K-12 through education includes the perspective of, quote, German soldiers in the Holocaust. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. That's, that's going to take me a minute. <laughs> there's a lot going on in, in that short clip. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would observe, I've, I've listened to it several times now, trying to figure it out. And I think one thing is that it expresses not malice, but ignorance, because she doesn't deny the Holocaust. She calls it a tragedy. She says there were people killed. She gets the number woefully wrong. But it seems to me that um, it's not as if she's trying to engage in Holocaust denial. She's not, she's not aligning herself with, with some kind of you know, neo-fascist movement in that regard. It seems to me she just hasn't been exposed to the information, uh, which would make sense because uh, Representative Fowler's resume indicates that she's never spent a single day of her life in school. She was homeschooled through the 12th grade, and then she did not pursue any post-secondary education. So it, it makes sense that, that she simply is ignorant of the facts of the Holocaust. But then again, one must ask, why would somebody so woefully and literally unschooled want to be on the education committee at the Ohio legislature? For me, sometimes um, ignorance, while not intended, can be used for malice. Like, I truly feel like a lot of these, like, far-right Holocaust denial groups could potentially look at sound bites of this and use this to justify, like, oh, we have someone in state legislature who is espousing our same ideals, even though She's just unaware. Um, I just believe that we need to hold our elected officials to a higher standard to know just even rudimentary basic facts about historical atrocities. That might just be me. I don't know. I like to hold my elected officials to a higher standard. Um, but just the misinformation that she's espousing alone is kind of the reason why we should still have CRT in schools. She's kind <laughs> mm -hmm. of going against her own point just by opening her mouth. True. You're, you're onto something there because the, it, it, it's a little different if the person holds no social, political, legislative power, but legislators do hold power. That's, that's concerning when they're, they're this ignorant. And so I, I think, Alex, you're onto something with your hypothesis that, uh, you know, that maybe it's, you know, these folks making the laws don't know enough about the, the issues and they should be looking, you know, at, at the actual issues or leaving education up to educators. God, you know, I feel like one of the surprise takeaways of this whole experience is that studying CRT is turning me into a Confucian. <laughs> um, like, I wasn't like, yeah, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but yeah, you know, we do over and over again, running into this problem of our, uh, legislative systems, our systems for how we select leaders are lacking in a meritocratic basis 
that means that the people who are in who are in the position of creating policy are just fundamentally not up to the task. And, you know, and I realize this is going to come across as anti-democratic because, I don't know, I guess it is. Um, but, like, should you have to, like, you have to have a license to be an electrician. You have to have a license to be a lawyer. To cut hair. Yeah, you have to have a license to be a barber. Should there be a licensing process? <laughs> I realize that's going to lead into all sorts of other cans of worms of how we license officials. So I'm already backtracking on this idea <laughs> um, of having, you know, the the PCATs before you're allowed to run for elected office. But should we, I guess, how then should we, you know, look at the creation of systems that are routinely, it seems, promoting people who are not well suited to run them into leadership problems, mm -hmm. or into leadership positions, excuse me. And this is something that, you know, comes up, I think, not just in our political leadership, you know, it comes up in our business leadership, it comes up in our university administrations, uh, that there is a, the, uh, the factors which lead to a person being in a position of authority are not the same as the factors which lead to a person using that authority responsibly and effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that it reminds me, and I've, I've thought about this a lot recently with just some of the things going on in the news. It, it does make you think there should be a minimum criteria. You know, when we hire people, we're, you set minimum thresholds. And it seems like that just doesn't apply to our state legislatures. Mm -hmm. You know, we can, we can maybe shoot for minimums, you know. Well, I, I'll just point out that uh, Sarah Fowler's ignorance of the facts of World War II and of, the, and of Nazism and of the Holocaust is not a failure of public education in Ohio. <laughs> right. Since she's never exposed to the public education system in Ohio, it's actually a failure of Republican attempts over the last generation to disinvest from public education in Ohio. So my solution would not be necessarily a certification process, but a reinvigoration and reinvestment in public education and an, an, an a affirmation that this experiment in uh, charter schools and privatization and the allowance of students to uh, somehow be educated by their parents uh, without any set curricula, uh, that, that this has been a failure. I, I didn't really even, I, I read the article and then, uh, then I heard, you know, the recording that you just played. And it, it, uh, it reveals to me that, that I need to continue my education to be able to understand uh, people who don't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. I, I, I still don't understand what she was really trying to say. Like she, like you said, she wasn't really a Holocaust denier, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm confused. It made, it made my head kind of hurt a little bit. I'm glad I have some Excedrin around here, but I would say, um, yeah, Alex, there is a license. Uh, and Jason, there is the criteria is, it's whiteness. Mm. Oh. Mm. Uh, Touche. Closely behind that is uh, maleness. Yep. Mm -hmm. But yep. you know, Miss Miss Fowler, uh, she had the first one going for her, mm -hmm. so that's why she's allowed to be in that position. I'm guessing, 
and uh, make no sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Thank you so much. Sure, thanks for the invitation. And uh, I, I take it this is your spring break. Yes, it is. <laughs> How's the weather in Texas in, in, in middle March? It's spectacular today. Sunny, 78 degrees, biking weather. Ah, ah you're a cyclist. Yeah, that's what I get at what I do for exercise. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, let me introduce you. Uh, and, and I'll introduce you. This is my class. <laughs> a class. This is Dr. Joe Feagan. Um, and uh, Dr. Feagan is the Ella McFadden Professor in Sociology at Texas A&M. And uh, he earned his PhD from Harvard University. And he is the author of more than 70 books, um, which, which is my first question. Did, did you publish your first book before you could walk? <laughs> no came out of graduate school okay as for most um but i i also was doing a little reading uh, so you so you you grew up in 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 south texas i take it yes houston was my hometown uh-huh uh-huh and and uh was was do you think uh you, the your formative place played a role in, in your academic trajectory, in the topics and, and theories and, and things that you eventually came to focus on? To some extent, I learned in a negative way what Jim Crow segregation was. Uh, it was a totalitarian system of racial oppression. And I never had any white friends, relatives, who were the least bit liberal on racial matters. And most people around me regularly use the N word as a normal word for Black Americans. So, so how how did how did your own perspective on these things evolve? Was it did you have to leave Texas to get perspective on this, or did you have perspective on on racism while you were still there? Well, as a kid, it never made sense to me. But there were no white adults who could explain or amplify my sense that it was uh, a system of oppression and unfair. Mm -hmm. I just had that sense. I may, I had the good sense to get out of Texas to go to grad school at Harvard. <laughs> and I had just gotten married. And the other married couple in my program there, uh, I started in social ethics and then switched to sociology. But the, the other, the only other married couple were two African-American folks. A little older than us, he was coming back to Harvard to get a PhD degree. Preston Williams, he eventually became head of the Harvard Center mm -hmm. on race. We used to go over to their house and they explained to these white kids from Texas just how 
racism worked in the lives of African Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the only credit I think I can give to myself is I listen well. <laughs> That's and uh, I, yeah. I've learned along the way to listen to people of color because they're just smarter than white people. <laughs> well, be, being able to listen is is not as common an ability as we all wish it was, right? So, so my students have spent the last week, of course, uh, reading your your excellent book, The White Racial Frame, and coming up with uh, with some questions for you. And let me uh, let me uh, read some of those to you, and and we can get your your insights about them. I think I think I can be, begin with this because it, it ties many of the themes of your book to this contemporary moment. Um, and as as I'm sure you're very well aware, uh, that uh, the 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 politics right now at this moment um, are decidedly against uh, what we do here in in thinking and studying and researching racism in America. Um, and along those lines, I had several students ask questions about the contemporary so-called anti-critical race theory movement. Um, so uh, Rofia um, writes that uh, in your book, you detailed several strategies that Americans of color and their white allies have used over the years to combat white racial framing. But here we are after generations of struggle for racial justice, um, and we're dealing with this movement of legislation against the teaching of ethnic studies and, and anti-racism. So, so um, Rafia wonders, um, do, do you see uh, critical race theory as uh, an effective method for dealing with a lot of the anti-racist counter-framing um, that, or do you believe that CRT is an effective anti-racist counter-framing uh, today? Well, I guess there's a complex way to answer that question, and I'll try to make it as brief as I can. The first lesson one has to learn about today is the attack on the critical race theory that started just about a year and a half ago is intentionally parroting lies. Mm -hmm. Most of what you hear from the right-wing media and from some of these white extremist activists who actually started attacking critical race theory are fictions, falsehoods. Mm -hmm. And much like, you know, I've studied Joseph Goebbels a little bit, the PhD uh, member of Hitler's staff, brilliant propagandist, and he's famous for the cliche that uh, if you tell a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. Mm -hmm. So you can see that the right-wing media and white supremacist activists keep repeating at city council meetings and school board meetings that critical race theory is this horrible thing that's being taught in K through 12 in our schools. That's just almost a 99.9% .9 falsehood. Mm -hmm. It's lying. 
And it's very hard to counter lying when it's circulated aggressively by things like the right wing talk radio or Fox News. Because those of us who know the truth about this just don't have those microphones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And another, so the first thing is most of what you hear about critical race theory is just lies. Mm -hmm. And it becomes obvious when these white extremists and politicians are asked to explain it, including our lieutenant governor who wants to ban it in college courses. Right. When you ask them to explain it, they can't. They mumble through stuff that's about as far from actual critical race theory as you could come up with. And a good test, if you want to test, uh, ask anybody who's attacking critical race theory in universities, colleges, in the media, ask them to explain who Derrick Bell was. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and to explain uh, his key article on the Brown v. School Board of Education in 1980 that is usually credited with starting the critical approach to racism in our legal system. Mm -hmm. I have yet to meet anyone, politician, some of my colleagues in the hard sciences, who has actually read critical race theory. Right. Uh, they certainly can't list the, the man who's usually considered the founder of it, Derrick Bell, Harvard Law Professor. Right, right. And I know why, because most of the, most of the major articles, probably 95% of the major articles in critical race theory are in law journals. Mm -hmm. If you're in a law journal article, you know it's tough reading. It's got thousands of footnotes. <laughs> right. And I think it's way over the head of the politicians who are parroting the anti-CRT rhetoric. Right, right. And it, uh, Goebbels was right. If you repeat a lie again, and that's how the Nazis succeeded in Germany. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Goebbels considered the, mass, the masses were dull masses, right? You had to get them emotional. Yes. You had to repeat lies again and again and again, and they came to believe it. Yep. Yep. So that's the problem with this current thing on CRT. Right. Actually, the term, if you don't know this, you might want to write it down. The term critical race theory was invented by some law students for a conference in 1989. Before that, and I guess I had been doing research in this area 25 years before that. The critical terminology was about institutional and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Right. Both of those terms are ones I helped coin. I had the first books by sociologists on institutional racism. Mm -hmm. And we got those ideas, I got those ideas out of the, the long black American critical analysis of racism tradition. Mm -hmm. The term institutional racism was actually invented in a firm in 
extensive way by a black activist during the 1960s civil rights movements. Mm -hmm. Stokely Carmichael uh, wrote a book with a black historian called Black Power, where he coins the modern term institutional and by implication systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I read that book as a new professor out of Harvard, young professor. It blew me away. Uh -huh. And I've been writing about institutional and systemic racism ever since. Critical race theory develops a couple of decades later when young scholars in law schools, our top law schools, started applying it aggressively to the racist patterns in our legal system. So much of this, or all of it, popular discussion of CRT is creating a new mythology for political purposes to seduce the masses into believing a lie. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So politicians always want to seduce the masses. The question is, why are the masses available to be seduced? And uh, I think this raises a question about your theory of the white racial frame, because I think one of the one of the wonderful things that your book does is that it it shows how the white racial frame is not just one thing that's stable and persistent over time, but that it is amenable to certain cultural and social modifications and changes, and, and it, it's gone through various phases, various iterations. Do you see this, uh, the, the traction which this anti-CRT movement has today as representing some other iteration of the white racial frame that's different from what came before? No, it's essentially accentuating a key part of the frame. Okay. Uh, yeah, the key point I make about the white racial frame is that across the social sciences and in general media and discussions of racism in this country, we went from its original meaning, the man who coined the term racism in the modern world was a Jewish scholar in Nazi Germany named Magnus Hirschfeld. He wrote the first book with racism as its title. Mm -hmm. And by racism, he meant systemic racism that the Nazis were applying to Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. A killing racism, a subordinating racism. Now, when the term was translated into English, in German it has an E at the end of it, when it was translated into English, and came to this country in the 1930s and 40s, white social scientists in this country started weakening it to mean prejudice. Mm -hmm. And so racism is still discussed and has been for decades in this country in terms of prejudice and stereotyping and bias and animus and bigotry, individualistic concepts. And it dawned on me several decades ago, and I didn't develop it until about two and a half decades ago, that prejudices and stereotypes against people of color or pro-white virtuousness are just one part of the dominant framing, or you can call it a worldview, that we whites both created 
to explain systemic racism in this country starting in the 1600s and also to amplify and sustain contemporary patterns of racial discrimination. It includes not only those prejudices and stereotypes, it includes racist narratives we whites peddle and sell. Uh, the anti-CRT thing is an example of that part of the frame that's been around since the 1600s. It's a fictional narrative designed to buttress white dominance in this country. So the frame includes narratives and interpretations, myths and fictions, in addition to any Black, any Asian, any Latino stereotypes and pro-white positive stereotypes. Those narratives are a critical part of the foundation of American racism. So it's, it's way more than prejudices and biases. Also in that frame are racist emotions. Almost everything in the frame the prejudices, the stereotypes, the narratives, it's undergirded by white motion, uh, white emotions of anger, fear, hostility. So that frame includes those racist emotions. It includes language accents that are preferred or dispreferred. It includes uh, imagery, racist imagery. And it includes inclinations to discriminate. So it's a worldview, way more than prejudice. And that's what Magnus Hirschfeld, that scholar in Germany, meant by it. It's a worldview. Now, to your specific question, some of these recent events are just amplifications in that worldview, or developments like this new set of CRT fictions in the worldview. It has, and it has two central features, I think, or an original contribution I made that I think we all need to pay attention to, is everybody recognizes that part of that frame of these anti-others subframes, anti-Black, anti-Asian, anti-Native Americans, anti-Middle Eastern. Those are well-developed and researched in social science. It includes all of those anti-others frames. But the center of the white racial frame is a pro-white virtuousness subframe. We whites are superior in language, in work ethic, in intelligence, in history, in civilization, you name it. And that's part of what's going on with this attack on teaching critical race theory. They're not really attacking that legal theory. They're attacking the teaching of an honest, an honest teaching of an honest American history that is foundationally and systemically racist. I mean, it's amazing to me that basic facts have not been taught yet. Mm-hmm, yeah. And now these politicians want to end that. Right. For example, 
Here's a fact you can present. There were 56 white male signers of the Declaration of Independence. 1776, usually set as the founding moment in the new United States. 73% of those elite white men, that's a seven and a three, were slaveholders. And remember, that's a document that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. You can see they're prime bullshitters, right? <laughs> well, it's consistent if you define men a certain way. Yeah, if you define it as elite white men. Yeah. Even ordinary white men in those days in many states and colonies couldn't vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it, I mean, how many of you knew that 73% of them were slaveholders? It's uh, certainly not in your elementary or uh, high school history books, that's for sure. <laughs> and, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50% of the Constitutional Convention were slaveholders, and the rest of them were merchants and lawyers and bankers dealing with the slavery system. Mm -hmm. uh, and something, I think, nine of our first 18 presidents were slaveholders, and all but one of the rest supported slavery. You know, it's like... Uh, they're just basic facts that the current regimes, right-wing political regimes, don't want taught. Right. They operate out of that white racial frame that assumes the center of it, that whiteness, white history, civilization, language, intelligence is superior. Yeah. And the bottom line on my argument is this current rolling back the current attack on so-called CRT is really an attack on black America and black Americans and black American history and black American critics. Mm -hmm. Like most of the, like 90% of the founders of critical race theory, the actual critical race theory are African-American lawyers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Institutional racism and systemic racism as an idea that influenced me and other white scholars came out of black civil rights movements and protests and uprisings. Slavery and Jim Crow account for 82% of this country's history. 82%. Of course, racism is foundational and systemic. You can't have it for 18 generations and it not be foundational and systemic. Mm -hmm. um, That's I, my soapbox. That's great. Um, our, our, last, our last distinguished guest uh, uh, in this class uh, was Mike Cole, uh, who, who discusses critical race theory from a Marxist perspective. And uh, in this class, we've also read a number of other uh, critics of critical race theory from a Marxist perspective who who would like to uh, link all of the, not all of, but, but primarily link racism to the development of capitalism um, and, and criticize those scholars who they would say uh, uh, present racism as more the perpetuation of certain ideas through history. Um, 
where would you place your work in that in that controversy, or would you deny the controversy at all? Well, I wrote a book with a younger colleague about two years ago called Elite White Men Ruling. And I developed the theoretical framework in that, and she helped come up with the key examples. My argument in the book is that the highest level abstraction we need is what I call the elite white male dominance system. Uh-huh. The people who run this country's major institutions have for 400 years been overwhelmingly, if not entirely, capitalistic, white, and male. When it comes to the analysis of Western capitalism, I'm a Marxist. Mm -hmm. But my friends, the Marxist scholars and neo-Marxist scholars, leave out the fact that these same guys at the top are white racist and sexist. Mm -hmm. They don't just make their decisions in terms of profits and exploiting workers for more profits. They often make their their decisions out of that white racist framing of the world. Mm -hmm. We have a long history of capitalists ignoring their profit mm -hmm. goals in order to help develop a racist system that keeps black workers at the bottom. Right. Or workers of color at the bottom. Yep. Even though more worker competition would, you know, help workers overthrow the system. <laughs> right. Workers buy into that. Mm -hmm. White workers buy into that. The great black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book about that called Black Reconstruction. He called it the public and psychological wage of whiteness. It's still the problem. That's why so many people are voting against their own interests out of white America. You've got to bring racism into the way capitalism operates in the way in which workers are subordinated in that system. And then, of course, it matters that these guys at the top are sexist, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there are really three frames. There's a white racial frame, a broad worldview on racial matters. There's a male sexist frame that feminist theory, in my view, needs to develop more aggressively. It's a broad white, uh, uh, it's a, a broad male worldview that's developed. You know, it's more than patriarchy. That's a key part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's a male sexist view. It's a very broad worldview that's also sold aggressively in this country. And then, of course, there's a capitalist class. And those three are constantly intertwined because the top intersection in this country is white, male, and capitalist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're almost never studied in social science. Uh, most of my class 
students in my classes can't even name more than three or four of them. Uh, but they run this country, they run it for 400 years, they make the key decisions, and they operate sometimes out of a class capitalistic framework, sometimes out of a white racist framework, sometimes out of a male sexist framework, and sometimes they blend them in a triple, what I call the triple helix. These white men at the top are never not white and never not male. Yeah. <laughs> Um, although, although I, uh, Yase, one of my students, uh, raises a question about um, how do we understand um, those uh, sort of leaders of color that do ascend to those levels, the Clarence Thomases, the Ben Carsons, the, the, this, the many others, um, and uh, especially those who are so uh, 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 aggressively conservative in this new GOP environment of, of aggressive conservatism and, and aggressive whiteness. What do we, how, how do we, how do we understand those figures within your, within your theory? Well, I think there's at least two ways to look at that. The Spanish word I think is vendido, sellouts. Uh, <laughs> it pays. You know, in such a comprehensively racist, sexist, classist system that we have, if you're a member of the oppressed classes, and of course, uh, women do this too, uh, other oppressed classes, some members of those classes will sell out to get partial advantages from the dominant group. And I think the other factor is that those elite white men have dominated our educational system so, so much, so great, such great domination that many people of color, many women, many working class white men don't know the actual history of this country. Mm -hmm. They buy into some of that racist framing, sexist framing, class framing. Because, again, Goebbels said, famously right, if you repeat a lie enough times, and that means a misrepresentation of our history, if you repeat that enough times, people come to believe it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think somebody like Clarence Thomas has come to believe a lot of the racist stuff out of that white racist frame. Not to mention the sexist stuff he's bought into. Yeah, right. You know, one of my closest friends went to law school at Yale with Clarence Thomas. And there weren't very many black law students back then. And he says that Thomas always sat at the back of the room. He didn't want to participate with the other eight black students. And he felt alienated from them, my friend says. He thinks Thomas was alienated from them because he came from a working class poor background and most of those few black students came from the middle class and upper middle class background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that he's been playing out this resentment, essentially a class resentment. Yeah. 
by buying and of course whites coddled him yeah my friend says also that the white students on the right-wing Yale law students coddled him and treated him pretty well. That's my friend's analysis. That's a little harder psychiatry, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's okay. Sociology and psychology used to be combined, right? <laughs> so uh, Shelby asks a, a related question. She says, um, throughout, uh, throughout the end of your book, White Racial Frame, uh, you highlight examples of resistance and deframing that lead to racial change. Um, following 2020, recently, there has been a rise in both active and what some would call performative activism to demonstrate the anti-racism of usually white liberals. Um, and you mentioned that this uh, quote-unquote white virtue may taint the relationship between white allies and people's, people of color. What advice would you give to, to white allies to avoid becoming the sort of white saviors that you discuss? Well, humility is a place to start, of course, and that's given that dominant center of the white frame, that's the hardest thing for us whites to do is to shut up and listen. Uh-huh, yeah. And it doesn't hurt to assume that usually what you learned as a white person is wrong. <laughs> uh, because black folks, Latinos, Asians, Middle Eastern peoples have just had, by the time you're 20 years old, you've had probably thousands of encounters with racist framing and racist actions. The same is true for women with sexist framing and sexist actions. Uh, it's kind of that old metaphor of the elephant and the mouse, right? Uh, the mouse knows the elephant, the mouse who lives in the elephant cage knows the elephant very well in order to survive. And the elephant doesn't have to pay too much attention to the mouse. So go with people's experience and listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And assume unvirtuousness for most of what we whites invented in this society in terms of racial matters. That's, that's solid advice. Solid advice. Um, well, let me let me open it up a bit for my students if they have follow-ups and additional questions I didn't I didn't get to. Um, I'll relay the question. I is that um, we've had another another guest scholar who points out that while while people of color certainly have lived experience, um, they all don't have the same lived experience, and um, and uh, it's it's dangerous simply to assume that someone who's racialized in a particular group has a particular set of knowledge. I think that's, that's the, the, the point that she was, she was wondering, I think, what, what your response to that would be? Well, that's a good point, I think, that there's a lot of diversity. You know, we touched on it with Clarence Thomas. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of diversity within uh, subordinated groups and groups of color, women's groups. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of variation. But I think virtually 
<clears throat> excuse me, every member of subordinated groups has experience with oppression, discrimination. Mm -hmm. So there are lessons to be learned probably from most people in those groups and subordinated groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But she's right. I, you, you, can't, you can't assume uh, some kind of a unanimity right of experience our perspectives. I think just as a general proposition, there's a lot more experience with racial oppression in groups of color than among whites. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I note also, um, and this might be a, a good, good question to end on, a number of my students, and I'm, I'm combining a lot of their written questions together, but a lot of them they really wanted your opinion about what, where you see the trends going from this moment. I mean, from from where we sit right now, things things are looking, I think, a little bit grim. <laughs> I think uh, we're all dealing with this uh, anti-CRT movement. It seems like the uh, the 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 GOP is is moving ever further into the embrace of of open white nationalism. Um, in your view, do you see these trends continuing, or is this maybe a, a momentary bump in the road that uh, will get past? Well, that's a very good question and a complex one, of course. I'm in the process of uh, about two-thirds through with writing a book I call White Minority Nation. Ah. That's looking at the fact that we're moving toward a country by no later than about 2045. A majority of Americans won't be white. And the implications of that in the last chapter, I'm trying to deal with that pessimistic kind of questioning that we all face right now because of certainly Donald Trump is the first openly white supremacist, white nationalist president we've had since probably Warren G. Harding in the 1920s. And he hasn't stopped now that he's the former guy. Right. He's still articulating uh, very white supremacist themes. In fact, some of it seems to be hardening yes. for him. So I didn't want to finish the book on the, there's a lot of pessimism, obviously, in these trends, the growth of white nationalist groups. Uh, the I never thought I'd in my lifetime I would see the violent attack on the Capitol building and uh, really an attempt to lynch the vice president and kill the Speaker of the House. Uh, so we've certainly had very bad times in the last couple of years. You could, there's a book called The New Jim Crow, which is about our prison systems racist system. 
Uh, but you could really apply this era. You need to do a book on this era called maybe the New Klux, Ku Klux Klan. Uh, there's so, you know, so many governors, the governor and politicians in my state, the Republicans, and in Florida right now, are, can't seem to come up with a bad, they keep some, coming up with worse ideas <laughs> in, the, in the direction of racism, sexism, classism, uh, attacking transgender kids. I mean, that, it's getting obscene. But uh, I think the good news is that Americans of color in particular and working class Americans in general have established in this country a very deep resistance tradition and rules for organization in order to counter these regressions into white nationalism, corporatist, right-wing capitalism. And I take optimism from the work of people like Stacey Abrams in Georgia. And she was not alone. She had a thousand acolytes. Uh, and then those thousand acolytes had more thousand. And they went out into the trenches in the last election, got 500,000 voters of color who had never been energized to, buy it, to vote, door-to-door, door-to-door, shoe leather, organizing, and beat the racist Republican system in control of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yep. Our two, arguably, our two most radical senators in the U.S. Senate are a black man and a Jewish man from Georgia. There's, there's something uh, contradictory in that statement. <laughs> uh, and it's from that hard work that those activists, and they included Asian Americans and Latinos. Mm -hmm. It was a multi, and some significant numbers of liberal whites. It was a very good example of a, of a working coalition targeting what's left, using what's left of our democratic institutions. Very successful. And there are other groups like that around the country you know, California, when I, my first job out of Harvard was at University of California, Riverside. And Ronald Reagan was governor of California. It was about as right wing as you can, it was more right wing than, than Trump. Trumpism. Right. I had to sign a loyalty oath as a new professor asserting I had never been a member of a Communist Party organization. The, the American Sociological Association didn't count? Nope. <laughs> no, you, uh, you had to take a loyalty oath to be a professor. California was pretty well run by right-wing Republicans. 
Now it's arguably our most progressive state in terms of social welfare, public welfare, legislation, a very multiracial Senate and House, uh, lots of great people-oriented programs, and of course, you know it has to be a pretty good place because the right-wing Republicans hate it. Yes. <laughs> they write books against it. Yeah, right. If California can do it, and they did it by, guess what? Organizing like Stacey Abrams and her folks did in Germany. Mm -hmm. They organized it, Mexican-American, Latino voters, black voters, Asian-American voters, and destroyed a really nativistic, you know, as late as the 1990s. Mm -hmm. California was passing anti-immigrant legislation that was pretty vicious. Undocumented immigrants couldn't be treated at hospital. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now with that organizing across racial groups, Black, Latino, Asian, Native American, and liberal whites, progressive ones, it now has a very progressive political economic system. It still has problems, earthquakes, wildfires, but it's making progress on climate change. Mm -hmm. It's progressive on GLBTQ issues. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's got a very diverse any racist legislator and governor and gave us our vice president the first woman of color first woman woman of color asian black ever mm -hmm. to be in the top positions in this society from california so if you're looking for optimism, I look at California, I look at Stacey Abrams. There's a new movement called the Race Class Movement. Uh, you may know the critical race scholar Haney Lopez. Ian Haney Lopez. Yes, uh, of course, yes. Yeah, he talks about, you know, he's written about dog whistle racism. Right. Mm-hmm. He and a group of black and Asian uh, faculty and activists have started a race class initiative project uh, where their goal is trying to bring moderate and progressive whites into a multiracial movement. Mm -hmm. By getting whites, moderate whites, to understand how they are being exploited essentially by Du Bois's public and psycholo psychological wage of whiteness. Yes. Uh, and they are being hurt by the racist system to a very substantial degree, and they're trying to develop how you explain that to white people who've been brain brainwashed right, uh, by the white racial frame by emphasizing to them certain class issues like uh, they can get better housing or better health care system if they join with people of color in a joint race class movement so there are movements across and then of course there are a bunch of them 
like Asdair, who are just working very hard on anti-racism workshops, conferences. There's an old Institute for the Healing of Racism. There are a bunch of those older groups, not to mention all the civil rights groups, NAACP, uh, LULAC, a Japanese American Association. They've been fighting for, fighting for civil rights forever. Uh, so I think if you get down and pessimistic, just start either joining, studying, learning about all of these resistance groups. Well, thank you for, uh, for, 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 for leaving us on that hopeful note. That's, <laughs> that's a good way for us to, uh, I think, wrap things up. I'm, I'm so appreciative for, of your time. I'm so glad you were able to make time to meet with us, and I'm sure my students are very appreciative of it. Um, and we look forward to seeing not only your next book, but your next 20 or 30. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. If you've got questions, just shoot me an email. I'm F-E-A-G-I-N at TAMU.edu. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, stay well and enjoy your cycling in the wonderful Texas spring. And uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, you all take care now. You too. Thank, well. thank you so much. All right, Joe Feagan, uh, what what an amazing scholar, uh, an amazing speaker. Um, I, I, I always really appreciate reading his material because uh, it's it's always so clearly presented and so 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 carefully laid out. Um, it's it's really a, a model of of popular. Uh, a combination of popular and theoretical scholarship. Um, so it's, it's something that I, I think we can all aspire to in our own writing, being that clear and that systematic. But I want to know what else, what else you got from our conversation. Yeah, I would echo the appreciation for the accessibility of, the, of his language and uh, writing for an audience that may not necessarily be steeped in academia. I think that's very important when we talk about... Uh, equity and access to knowledge, right? Uh, especially we talk, talk, talk about economic class because not everybody is going to college or will have access to college, but may be interested in these ideas. Um, he's just a wonderful human being too, you know, just having got to hear him speak today and recognizes, I, I appreciate the level of humility that he that standard of humility that he places upon himself mm -hmm. and, really came through. right, mm -hmm. and really emphasizes for other white folks that are interested in these things and these ideas to, you know, he uses words, he said, just shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's really good advice for it's folks that are, yeah. uh, that are interested or want to know how to help and how to be good allies. Sometimes it does mean just being quiet and listening to other people's experiences and recognizing that, your experience should not be at the center of everything that you do because it's not the the reality for other people that you interact with. So I, I appreciated his, his thoughts today. Mm -hmm. There was an idea in his book that we didn't talk about in the interview, but I want to bring it up here because I think it's podcast worthy, uh, which is just the role that emotion plays in mm. sort of uh, constructing uh, the white racial frame, as he puts it. And uh, I was talking about this right before we started recording, that so often our discussions around things like 
critical race theory are framed explicitly in emotional terms, right? You, you hear this sort of common talking point of like, oh, they're teaching white children to be ashamed of themselves. You know, I don't want to be ashamed of my race. I want to be proud of my ancestry. And as joking that like there's many things in this world that I am ashamed of, such as my inability to use its and its correctly. <laughs> there are many things that I'm proud of. Uh, race is not in either of those categories, <laughs> right? It, this is something that's sort of inherited and sort of externally applied to me. I didn't work to become white, you know, right? Like, so it's odd that, and I think it speaks to the level to which, you know, people's feelings about, you know, critical race theory or anti-racist is, uh, ideas being offensive is very much about an emotional, visceral, limbic system level response of like, ooh, this makes me uncomfortable. Why does this make me uncomfortable? It shouldn't make me uncomfortable. I need to I need to destroy this thing that is, you know, making me <laughs> right. uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Going off of that, um, the limbic system, especially the amygdala, it's like a very primitive part of the brain. Um, like when you think back evolutionary evolutionarily Yes. Anyway, when you look back, um, when you think about like the Uncanny Valley, how um, our ancestors would see a humanoid type figure that looks similar to them, but isn't them. It's that fear of the unknown. And thus you want to either attack or run away. Um, the same can be said about CRT and how a lot of our framing is based in emotion because you don't have to frame it in logic because then you understand it. There's something to be afraid of. But if the only way you describe it is based on how people want you to understand how you would feel from these things, then you don't have to understand it. You just have to understand that it's something fearful that could harm you and then you either attack it or you want to run away from it and displace mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, too, when you talk about emotions with the anti-CRT, it's centering white emotions, mm -hmm. yes. right? Yes. Because, yeah. I mean, if you look at the entire history of the United States and the kind of the kind of just inhumane brutality mm -hmm. that has been inflicted upon people of color, black Americans especially, right? The, the emotional trauma, the physical trauma, the psychological trauma, I mean, that's real and mm -hmm. that's so it just it's just the irony, I guess, and just the frustration of my white guilt and white, you know, feelings are being hurt and being being, you know, attacked. Therefore, I need to attack back and not considering for just a moment, right? Not decentering your whiteness for just a moment and wondering what is it like to be a person of color, a child of color in that classroom and hearing what white people did to people that look like you and your family. Right? Like, it's, again, even in, you know, with Fagan, right, this white racial frame, like, always recentering that whiteness instead of just for a moment, maybe just out of empathy, just stepping out for a second and imagining that social, sociological imagination just for a moment. 
what is it like to be the non-white kid sitting in that classroom learning the same information and that impact that it has? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe I'm just getting really emotional because of pregnancy <laughs> yeah. hormones. And, you know, I don't know, but like I just as a mother too, like you know, I I just can't. I I don't feel sorry for you. I don't yeah. <laughs> like you know. I don't. Like, I'm sorry that you feel guilty or feel some sense of shame. Like, that's not my problem. That's your trauma to work through. That's your issue to talk about. I can be there for you and help you with resources, absolutely, Mm -hmm. and recognize that it hurts because learning is a hurtful process at times. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile. Yeah. I remember not so many years back when uh, conservatives would attack liberals uh, before they discovered woke, I guess. Um, (laughs) Conservatives would attack liberals not too many years ago by saying they were snowflakes being right. oversensitive. Or the bleeding heart liberals. Yes, right. bleeding right. heart liberals would be the ancestor of that. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, that's really changed a lot. Right. That's really mm-hmm. gone away. And, you know, I think there's kind of an irony to this sort of these narratives of white guilt being, you know, used with regards to critical race theory. Because one of the main arguments of critical race theory is that racism is a systemic institutional problem, not the problem of bad actors. Like, if you're looking for a way to alleviate white guilt in an intellectual way, like, here you go. Here's your free class. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not your fault individually, Rebecca, that racism exists. It is the fault of school systems and court systems and right and right. these so vast it, depersonal transgenerational institutions that go beyond one person being virtuous or unvirtuous right right so so if the if the priority of the school system is to protect little joey or little travis's very fragile ego um, we should teach more crt not less mm-hmm. of it yeah exactly. exactly right i think that's the issue though um when you see like the biggest proponents against CRT, it is the people who control these institutions. And that's why they're fighting so hard against it because it's taking the onus off of the individual, Mm -hmm. like the individual working class, everyday Jack and Sally, Mm -hmm. and putting it on the shoulders of like Congress Mm -hmm. and school boards, our school boards, our judicial system. And they don't want that. They don't want to lose that. Absolutely. So if you're a, I don't know, Ohio state legislator (laughs) and you're saying that the Ohio state government (laughs) is one of these, you know, institutions that's perpetuating uh, racial inequalities. Now that does seem a lot more personal, but only if you're an Ohio state legislator, you know, if you're just sort of the average person on the street, who's theoretically being represented by your legislator, then, you know, this is your way out. Right. Right. So, um, and the the center of uh, this picture frame, this white picture frame, is a book that's called Fear. Mm-hmm. And fear can cause some insecurities. And when you were a long time ago afraid because you couldn't take care of yourself. You didn't have adequate food, clothing, and shelter. Um, And you found some people who did. And 
then you messed them over. You had to kind of create a new story and a new frame, not only for them, but for yourself. And that is where many people, I think, in the United States today live. They live in fear. And it's not only white people. There's a lot of black people who live in fear, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas is afraid. Black people who are against critical race theory and do not want to know about the true history of not only this country, but of who they are and who they have been before they were enslaved, before they came through segregation. Because it's frightening Mm -hmm. what you might have to do with that knowledge how you might have to change how you behave towards each other. Indeed. Well, once again, thank you all for a very insightful discussion. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to our discussion next week. I'm sure there'll be much more to talk about. There always seems to be. So until then, this is Real CRT. You are. What is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realized. Victory's mine. One day. I'll tell Victory's mine. All around. One day, I'll tell you. Victory's mine. All around. One day. I also want to thank our musical artists that provide the interludes between our segments, Danilo Prates, Jifa, Airtone, and Texas Radiofish. Until next week, I am Tim Messer-Cruz, and this is Real CRT.